Oh, good evening, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, or the Bible is in front of you in the pew there, can you turn to those verses that Ho read for us earlier from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5? I think it's page 1188 in the pew Bibles. And here's what I would like you to do. I'm going to speak for a wee bit longer than I kind of usually like to do. Uh, so to sort of give you a bit of a break and that, what I'd love you to do is just turn around and say hello to somebody beside you and then describe the reading or the two readings that Ho read for you in one word. Okay? So just a word to describe the readings that Ho read. Alright? So turn around and say hello to someone and one word to describe the readings. Okay, uh, the, the title for this evening, or at least the title in our E100 book, and, and for those for whom that doesn't really mean a lot, uh, this is a book that we've been using as a church during 2011 to sort of help us work our way right through the Bible in a year. And, and the sort of title that's in that book for this text is, I Want to Be Ready. And whenever you read that or or see that, well, you're left with an obvious question, aren't you? Which is, well, ready for what? And and having listened to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, you soon realise that what this title refers to is the need to be ready for the end of life. Or the end of time. Or the end of our world as we know it. Aye, that's, thanks Richard. (laughs) I'm busy looking at a screen that says something completely different from the one that's behind me. Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. Only one brave enough to do that. Uh, Yes, so so that that title really refers to just this whole idea of the end of life, the end of time, and the end of our world as we know it. And so what we're coming to this evening is one of those parts of the Bible that refers to end times. Or the last days. So we're about to plunge into the realms of, and so here's a a big word, big word warning, not a particularly familiar word, but we're going to plunge into the realms of eschatology. Which basically means just what we believe regarding the final events in history. What we believe regarding the final events in history, the last things. Now, the minute you begin to talk about eschatology... And I see some people smiling at me already. Uh, Most people's minds move up a gear, so to speak, sort of into overdrive. Because for a whole variety of reasons, there is something profoundly fascinating and intriguing and interesting about these kinds of issues. And therein lies a potential danger. Because some people can and do become preoccupied with this subject And often enter the hazardous arena of unhelpful prediction and idle speculation. How many uh, people recognize this particular gentleman? Anybody? A number of people putting their hands up. Uh, He hit the headlines twice this year, just before the 21st of May, and then again just before the 21st of October. Why? Thanks, Sam. He predicted... 
the end of the world. This is Harold Camping, a 90-year-old Californian preacher who predicted that the world would end in May, and then when it didn't, he revised his prediction. And the New York Post carried this comment. It's time to batten down the hatches one more time and prepare for yet another doomsday. Next week, in fact. According to the pastor who had previously incorrectly predicted the world would end 21st of May, this time 90-year-old Harold Camping has set the positively final date for October the 21st and says it won't be pretty. The whole world, with the exception of those who are presently saved, are under the judgment of God and will be annihilated together with the whole physical world on October the 21st, 2011. Now the problem is, that didn't happen. We're still here. The world is still intact and therefore people like this sadly end up with egg all over their face. And as a result of this kind of on ways prediction and speculation, some vitally important issues and realities that do need to be discussed and do need to be considered and taken very seriously are further relegated to the realms of fantasy and nonsense. And so the gospel is ridiculed. And on the flip side, another inherent danger with biblical references to end times is not so much that, but to just gloss over them or to kind of avoid them altogether. And there's no doubt that eschatological passages, those that do anticipate the last days, they are difficult. They, they are mind-stretching, head-melting. They can be disturbing That's maybe the word you use to describe what Ho read for us. Even terrifying for some. And so therefore many people are tempted, well let's just skip them or let's leave them to someone else. And yet, and I love this thought that I came across during the week as I prepared for this. Reading the New Testament without attention to these passages is a bit like selecting raisin toast for breakfast and then eating around the raisins. That's just brilliant. I absolutely love it. It's maybe just my warped mind that loves that sort of thing. But preoccupation and speculation might not be too clever, but neither is avoidance. Although in many ways, I kind of understand why we may want to eat around. See, the language we find in these passages... The imagery that we come across, the extreme nature of future events that are talked about are so outside our natural and normal experience and frame of reference that most of us probably struggle, if if we're honest, to know what to think and what to believe about these kind of things. And yet thinking and discovering what we do believe concerning these issues is vital. And so as we come to one of those passages, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through to 5, 11, I want to encourage us to, to approach it honestly and with humility. And so if we're here tonight and we are somewhat confused by talk along these lines, then let's be honest about it. Let's admit that. If we're troubled by it, let's admit that. If we're a bit indifferent about it, or blasé, maybe even dismissive, 
Let's also admit that. As we come, before we try to come to terms or to get a sense of what those verses are saying, I'm absolutely convinced that as we approach this, we need to be relatively clear about two things. And the first is the context. Well, what exactly was going on in Thessalonica that prompted Paul to write this? And the second thing is this, what did Paul hope to achieve? What was his purpose? What did he want the church to do with this information that he shared? Well, in terms of context, there were two pressing issues that were weighing heavily upon the minds of the local Christians. Two issues that were clearly causing quite a large degree of anxiety. Two problems that needed to be talked about. And the first concerned death and bereavement. You see, the Christians in this place and at this time never really expected anyone to die before Jesus came back again. They were pretty sure that Jesus would return during their lifetime. But Jesus hadn't. And so with the passing of time had come the passing away of some of their Christian friends. And that really bothered them, worried them, troubled them. What was their fate? And then, and and here was the sort of second problem, how should they, that is those who were still alive, how should they prepare themselves for this so-called day of the Lord? And wrapped up in that were concerns about judgment. I mean, if there was going to be a day of reckoning, a day whenever they were going to personally stand before Jesus, who was meant to be coming again, how should they get ready for that? How should they prepare themselves? How should they live in light of that in the present? And so Paul, having heard or been made aware of their unease and their apprehension regarding these kinds of issues, decided, I need to speak into that situation. I need to write to these Christians. But although this was 2,000 years ago, I think it's worth making the point, and I know it's an obvious point to make, that at a certain level, our context today is actually not that radically different. The death of our friends and our loved ones, bereavement, and our own judgment, they are still realities that cause many of us anxiety. And therefore, the the relevance of what we have or what Ho has just read for us and for the thinking that I hope we're going to begin is apparently obvious. So having said something about the context, these two issues, death, bereavement, those who had died, and this whole issue of how are we meant to live now as we wait? That's the context. But what about Paul's purpose? Well, within that overall section, there were two verses. I don't know if you picked up on them, that clearly clarified the reason behind Paul's input. Take a look at the final verse of chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Or look at verse 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another 
and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. You see, Paul's intention in writing about these things was never to frighten, never to confuse, never to send heads spinning unnecessarily, not to feed curiosity. The information that Paul shares is to be used, how positively? It's to be used to help. The words that he was going to share with them, the words that he was writing to them are to be taken. They're to be talked about in a local church context amongst Christians so that individuals would be strengthened in their faith. And so tonight as as we leave here in a while, that is honestly my prayer. That as we look at this, that as we revisit some which I know is familiar material to many of you, that we will actually take it and use it as fuel for mutual encouragement. Because that's the purpose in Paul writing it. Not that we become preoccupied with these issues, not we'd head off in some speculation games, but that actually we would take it and encourage one another with these words. Build each other up with these words. And so let's work our way through this in a little detail. So we'll start at verse 13. If you have a Bible, as I say, it would be really handy. And Paul's pastoral heart is right out there from the word go, if you look at it. You see, he doesn't want Christians to be left in the dark about these issues. He wants to help them find answers, to find a way forward. And so he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, or maybe your version says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then he uses a really interesting, and I think it's an intentional phrase, I don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who sleep in death. Now, although talking about death in that way is is not unusual in lots of cultures and contexts, the point here from a Christian perspective is that Paul introduces or highlights the idea that death's only temporary. And so just as a person wakes up after being asleep, Paul is beginning to help them see that death is not the end. There will be an awakening for their Christian friends. And Paul then goes on and he recognizes the reality of grief. And don't miss this because grief is natural. We know that. Grief is important. It's so helpful. Tears. The sense of loss. The pain that for some people lasts for longer than others. But it's all totally understandable. It needs to be expressed. Nowhere does Paul suggest that Christians shouldn't grieve. Be crazy if that was what Paul was saying. But what he does raise in this verse is the difference or the distinctive quality of Christian grief. Because what he says here is, we don't grieve like others. And why? Well, it's because we have hope. They have hope. And where is that hope to be found? Where is it grounded? And the answer is in Jesus. And look at verse 14 again. It says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, We also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And so death is not a permanent state. It's a temporary condition. 
their Christian friends, says Paul, will be raised to life again, just as Jesus was. And so their hope is found in what God will do. Why? Because of what God has done. Future hope grounded in the past. God will do this. Why? Because God has done this. Jesus died. He was raised to life again. And therefore, resurrection awaits their friends. And that is what provides amazing hope. And you could describe that one verse as a kind of fundamental creed. Here's what we believe as a church. Herein lies our hope as a church and as individuals. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus is coming back. Cross, resurrection, return. You've got to hold on to these beliefs tightly. Because when you hold on to those beliefs tightly, they are your source of your hope. And that's why this is so important for me. That's why this is such an integral part of a service here every single week. Because this acts as a very graphic and tangible and vivid reminder of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we only do it as we often say, when? Until he comes again. This reference to the coming again of Jesus. So every single week, we're reminded of cross, resurrection, return. And that's where I find my hope. And Paul then goes on to talk about what will happen to those who are still alive when Jesus returns. Look at verse 15. And what he effectively says is that they will join their friends and Jesus. Now at one level that sends many people's heads spinning. And what it actually sparks are are lots of other questions. But what Paul is getting across here as he speaks into their specific situation and into their concerns is the reality, and I need to say this very carefully, is the reality that there is an unbreakable solidarity which the people of Christ enjoy with Jesus and with each other that not even death destroys long term. Let me say that again. There is an unbreakable solidarity which the people of Christ enjoy with Jesus and with each other that not even death destroys long term. Their Christian friends who have died are not somehow separated from Jesus forever they'll come it says with him nor are they separated from those who are still alive on a permanent basis why because they will join them is what Paul says and this evening I really want to stick as much as I can to just what I find written here And so Paul is helping them to face up to and come to terms with some very real anxieties. And as he keeps writing, he offers even more insight into exactly what will happen. Look at verses 16 and 17. Four events, he says. Jesus comes back in person. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first. There's this idea of resurrection Those who are still alive are going to be caught up, swept up, snatched up together with them. And therefore, the final event is this amazing 
reunion. Those who have died, those who are still alive, are reunited with each other and with Christ forever. Now, I know that if our heads are kind of spinning and we have lots of questions after verses 14 and 15, I have no doubt that whenever you draw attention to and you look at these four events in verses 16 and 17, your head spins a wee bit faster and maybe even the questions pile up higher. But what I want to suggest is that's potentially dangerous. And here's why. I'm not suggesting that our heads shouldn't spin. And I'm not suggesting that there are no questions. But in reacting to this teaching, and in reacting to this section, we face and must resist three temptations. The first is to run ahead. And to drag up all sorts of other issues that Paul doesn't address here. Because you see, if we do that, we'll miss the importance of what Paul has just said. And I find this happens time and time again. I know there is nothing in there about the nature of the resurrection body. So when the dead in Christ rise first, what will they look like eventually? I know there is nothing in here about the resurrection of unbelievers. What about those who have died who are not in Christ? What happens to them? We run ahead. There's nothing in here about the new heaven and the new earth. But judgment day as such about hell. And yes, some of those are addressed elsewhere in the New Testament. But you see, if we run from here to there, we risk robbing these verses of their own integrity. Take what Paul has written here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and allow these words by themselves to instill hope and provide food for thought. You may think, David, that's a wee bit of a strange thing for you to be saying. And yet, look at verse 18 again. Because Paul says, encourage each other with these words. These words. That means that for these Christians, this was enough. In these verses alone, there was enough to share with each other, to provide help and hope. And therefore, in one sense, there's enough here for us to use for our mutual encouragement. We don't need to run ahead and drag other issues into this. That's the first temptation. The second is to take Paul at his word, but instead of finding hope, there are those who pick holes. That as a result of some of the language he uses, like archangel shouts, trumpet blasts, the spatial descent of Jesus, meeting him in the clouds, we conclude whenever we engage with language like that, it's far too fanciful. Do you know, this is like the stuff of myths and fairy tales rather than reference to real events which belong to history. And therefore, there are many people who take Paul at his word, yeah, but they just say it's all make-believe. But the third temptation to resist, and this is the other extreme, is to deny that the passage we have read does contain some figures of speech. 
some of what we find in here, I don't believe we should take absolutely literally. Some of it does belong to the realm of symbolic and apocalyptic imagery. And if we can acknowledge and I believe resist these three temptations, then in the incredibly helpful words of John Stott, who I know I've actually been quoting a lot recently, (laughs) and I don't really apologize for that, but in his words, if we can resist these temptations, we will be able to combine a strong affirmation that we are eagerly expecting a cosmic event which includes the personal visible appearing of Jesus Christ and the gathering to him of all his people, whether dead or alive at the time. That's what we affirm. But we combine that with a definite degree of agnosticism about the full reality behind the imagery. In other words, let's affirm, let's find hope in, let's grab hold of the central elements of what Paul teaches here while acknowledging the possibility of uncertainty about some of the details. And so Paul has, in a sense, addressed their first problem, their first cause for anxiety, this reality of death and bereavement and separation And how that all fits with the return of Jesus. And what he says as he speaks in that, he says, listen, take this and encourage each other with these words. And then in chapter 5, he turns his attention to their worries about the day of the Lord. About judgment. About how they should live on a daily basis. Now, I do realize that I've kind of been speaking for probably long enough. But let me just make a few comments about these verses. Because it's it's pretty obvious that Christians in this place were getting a bit too hung up on the whole idea of knowing dates and times. You see, the thinking was, well, if we had a decent idea when Jesus is coming back, and, and you can understand this thinking, but if you could have a decent idea when Jesus was coming back, then you could make sure you were adequately prepared. But Paul quickly reminds them that, listen, predicting times and dates is a no-go area. And in fact, they should have known that, as should those who do this kind of thing. And what Paul does is he uses a couple of metaphors to illustrate how it's going to happen to make this point. And together they make the point that it's going to be sudden and unexpected and sudden and unavoidable. And so the first metaphor he says, listen, it's going to come like a thief in the night. There's going to be no advance warning. There's going to be no heads up. Never is with a burglar. It will happen suddenly and unexpectedly. And then the second metaphor is it will come as labor pains on a pregnant woman. Again, there is this element of suddenness, yes, but surely when you're pregnant, not that I would know, surely when you're pregnant, You expect labor pains. You can't escape them. And that's the point with this metaphor. In this context, at this time. Christ's coming is a given. It will happen. It will be sudden. And there's nothing you can do to avoid it. So knowing the date is not up for discovery. So forget that. But there is a way forward. There is a way to live. There is advice to embrace about what you should do in the meantime as you await the inevitable. And that is 
you must be alert and self-controlled. By self-controlled, this idea of, and, and I know the images or the version that, that Ho read first, this idea of being sober. Or this idea of being balanced, of being self-disciplined. Because that way, although this is going to be sudden, and although it's going to be expected, <laughs> somebody want to take that call? Uh, although that is sudden and unexpected and unavoidable, it will not come, and Paul says this there, it will not come on you as a surprise if you are alert and if you're self-controlled. And the reason that it will not come on you as a surprise is why? Look at verse 5. It's because you're children of the light. You are children of the day. That is your identity. And therefore, what Paul's really saying is, live accordingly as you await Christ's return. What does that mean? What does that look like exactly? What does it mean to live as a child of the light, as a child of the day? Well, for us, there's a sense in which that's what so much the rest of the New Testament is about. It's all about discipleship. For the Thessalonians, Paul actually earlier in this letter had told them what that was about. It was about holy living. That's how you live as a child of the light. In holiness. Take it seriously. And Paul then goes on because he says, okay, in addition to being alert and being self-controlled as children of the light, you also need to be properly armed or properly equipped. And again, Paul's back to this whole idea that life now here for you as you're still alive is a battle. The present involves a struggle. Echoes of Ephesians 6 for those who've been following this series. You've got to be like a soldier, again, echoes of two weeks ago. You've got to wear the right kit. And here, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he varies the symbolism. And this, this is really interesting. So this time, he doesn't talk about the breastplate of righteousness you may have picked up. He talks about putting on faith and love as a breastplate. And putting on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now that's just a slightly different take on the armour. And some people get a bit hot headed up about that. Why is it different? Don't. The point is exactly the same. You need to be protected. This is how you're going to live in light of Christ's coming. You need to be protected. So how I want to be ready? Be alert, be self-controlled, and be protected. But then Paul finishes with a reminder, and I absolutely love this bit as he he draws this to a conclusion. Because what he does is he reminds them of what God has done for them. Look at verses 9 and 10. And what God has done for us. He says, listen, you were appointed to receive not wrath. This This is difficult. But you were appointed not to receive wrath, but to receive salvation. And how? Paul says, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And so as Paul finishes this section of teaching, he returns to their earlier concern in verse 10. He says, whether you die as Christians before Jesus comes, whether you're still alive when Jesus comes, in other words, whether you're awake or asleep, you're going to live with him 
forever. That's the whole point. And therefore, as he finishes this section again, he repeats what he said earlier, encourage each other. And build each other up. And so the Christians in this place were worried about death. And they were worried about the day of the Lord. The end of the world. Judgment. And those are still very real anxieties for lots of people today. And so what does Paul speak into their situation? He speaks Jesus. He speaks Jesus. His cross. His resurrection. His coming again. And that provides hope. Because their ultimate objective is so that we will live with Christ forever. And nothing, nothing, whether death or bereavement or judgment can separate us from Jesus. And so rather than a cause of apprehension, this should create a sense of anticipation. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would uh, enable us to take your word and use it to encourage one another. That God, none of us, uh, I would ask, would leave here this evening confused or apprehensive, but would leave with a sense of anticipation and with a recognition of the hope we have in what you will do because it's been grounded in what you have done. And so God, I ask that we would never lose sight or lose hold of the cross, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.